Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. Welcome to the September 3rd, 2019 edition of Learning Well on Edge Talk Radio, which is sponsored by Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My name is Elise Markham-Johns, and I'm delighted to be your host this evening for our conversation with author Becky Keeker. In her first book, Hiding in My Pajamas, Becky focused on a major challenging transition in her life from being a 20-year partner in a successful woman-owned commercial architectural firm to retirement. She thought she'd done everything right to prepare for retirement, but her planning had not covered the emotional roller coaster of retirement. In her latest book, Becky chronicles a complicated surgery which required six months in a wheelchair and endless rehab, which turned her life in a new direction she could never have expected. In her speaking engagements around the country, she focuses on some of the nagging questions audience members have about their money and how to prepare for retirement, such as How do I know I'm ready for retirement? What does this actually mean to close the door on your career? And how do I handle the marital turbulence, the emotional stereotypes, excuse me, and financial challenges along the way? And she does it all with great grace and humor. I am excited to have her with us tonight. I think you'll really enjoy her information that she'll be sharing with us. Becky will be joining us in just a few moments to share her wisdom, her experiences, and we hope you'll stay with us for this fascinating look into really one of life's most interesting as well as challenging transitions. And our hope with our Learning Well programs is that the information we share with you will enhance your well-being, encourage you to take action in your own life, and provide information or ideas that you can share with those who are important to you, your friends, your family, your loved ones, or your clients. And we want to thank the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for sponsoring Learning Well and helping us bring you conversations with some of the leaders in the field of health and wellness. As some of you know, the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale offers a wide range of classes in the areas of traditional health as well as integrative and holistic health for both individuals as well as businesses. And we'd like to share a little bit of information with you about some of the upcoming classes that you might find particularly interesting. In fact, this fall, there will actually be five different certification programs that will be available in September and October at Normandale. There is a holistic nutrition certificate program, and those classes will run Monday nights from 6.30 to 9, from September 16th through November 18th. On Tuesday nights from 6.30 to 9, from September 17th through November 12th, there will be a Holistic Assessment Skills Certificate Program. A Simplified EFT Tapping Foundation Certificate course will be held on Wednesdays from 6 to 9, starting on September 18th and concluding on October 9th. And there will be an Aromatherapy Foundation Certificate course, which will be offered on Fridays and Saturdays, September 20th and 21st, from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And there will be 
a six-session homeopathic medicine certificate series on Saturdays from September 28th through December 14th, which will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. And we also wanted to let you know about a freestanding course that we thought you might particularly uh, enjoy. It's called Wild Plant Walk, and it will be held on Wednesday, September 11th from 5 to 7.30 p.m., and it will give students an opportunity to learn identify and appreciate basic edible and medicinal uses of wild plants and shrubs of the late summer and early fall. This has been a tremendously popular course over the years, and for those of you who are in the Minneapolis area, I hope you'll have a chance to take advantage of it. For more information on these classes and courses, as well as other uh, Normandale Continuing Education classes, we encourage you to call 952-358-8343 or email Normandale at www.normandale.edu forward slash CE forward slash classes. Now I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our guest, Becky Keeker. Becky retired from a 20-year career as a partner in a commercial architectural firm. Leading business development and forming strategic relationships with Fortune 500 companies around the world, she was named a top woman of achievement, was honored with a Star Catchers Award by the St. Louis County Library, and is a recipient of the YWCA President's Award Honor. After retiring, she turned to writing and authored two highly acclaimed books, Hiding in My Pajamas and A Classic in Clown Shoes. Becky, welcome. I'm so glad you could join us this evening. Wow, thank you for that introduction. That is just awesome, and thank you so much for having me here this this afternoon. I really, really appreciate it, and a big shout-out to all of your listeners. Oh, thank you. Well, I've been looking forward to this, and for our listeners, I'm going to be totally candid and transparent and say I've known Becky for a couple of years, uh, which is the reason why I thought she'd be just a terrific guest. Her books are outstanding, covering a topic that I think is really overlooked, the emotional roller coaster of retirement. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. So, Becky, first of all, could you share with our listeners a little bit about what your life was like prior to retiring from the corporate world and becoming an author? Well, my life was really, really busy. My firm was headquartered in St. Louis, and we had offices in Tempe, Arizona, and Shenzhen, China. So I traveled all the time, and 80-hour weeks were absolutely not out of the questions as I went around and and met with Fortune 500 companies from literally around the world. And being in business development, it was a very demanding, tiring career. So by the time I reached 69 years old, I decided that we, I had four younger partners uh, beneath me who were my other partner and I were training to come up in the company, and it just seemed to make sense to, you know, to really cut the ties and hand the keys over, if you will, and move on down the line. And did you start this company from scratch, basically, with a partner? I did not. I had this wonderful woman uh, who was the actually senior partner and president of the company who started it about probably 10 years before I came on board and was a partner with her. And what she really needed was somebody to be more aggressive in the business development um, department. So we used to call each other good cop, bad cop. And, of course, I was always <laughs> bad cop because I had to go out and pound people to get the business. And when you're selling 
commercial uh, architecture and interior design to Fortune 500 companies, you're talking about them spending millions of dollars. So the processes for getting new clients was long and um, and very very intense. So it was it was it was probably one of the most challenging things I have ever done in my life. And as you said, it was over 20 years of just constantly running at warp speed. So when you retired, your life changed rather dramatically. And if you could share with our listeners, Becky, what, what you experienced after you retired from this corporate career, which was incredibly demanding. <laughs> well, you know, I read uh, something that Malcolm Forbes wrote years ago, and he said retirement kills more people than hard work ever did. And I had no <laughs> clue, of course, what that meant until after I retired but one of the things that I did that I would not recommend to listeners is I moved from St. Louis to Tucson, Arizona very quickly. My husband and I had purchased a house down here seven years before I actually even thought about retiring. We just started coming back and forth here and enjoying the, you know, the, the mild winters instead of the St. Louis snow and ice. But the first challenge that I really faced after I moved down here was the loss of my social network. And I had everything in the world in place that I could possibly want, a lovely home. I had the, you know, my finances in order. I was ready to retire. But the close connection you know, that I had with my family, my friends, my clients, my business car- partners, that was all severed. And I moved to a location where I did not know anyone. So I never really considered how devastating this would be. When you walk out and close that door on your work life, the simple answer honestly is that part of you literally disappears. You worked your whole life to get where you are and to do what you did and to what and to for the accomplishments that you had. But all of a sudden the silence after you close that door is deafening in such a very personal way. And my husband, bless his heart, trying to help, would always say to me, just remember who you were and what you accomplished and what you did. But that word were just drove me crazy. How could I have been so successful as a partner in a $25 million a year company and the next day society viewed me as no longer relevant? Other than the new wrinkles that I noticed that I had in the mirror because of all the stress that I was under, Nothing had honestly changed for me. I thought I was the still, still the same person. But after you retire, you're really not. And I'm just curious, how long would you say it took you to really come to terms with that retirement? In, in other words, how long did it take you not to really think of you on a regular, think of yourself on a regular basis as that? person who worked for that firm? Believe it or not, it actually took me two years. It was was such a diversion uh, from coming off of the high, if you will, of being where I was and important in the scope of things. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what a lot of people don't realize is how much you actually personally lose of yourself, no matter what you actually have in place when you retire. And I think that's fascinating too, Becky, because even you had a family, you had kids, you had a social life, you had friends, and yet I totally understand what you're saying because it took me a full year after I retired 
um, to come at least to some terms with. I'm not, I can't measure myself by who I was as that person who worked for that company. Um, I mean, it's, I, less, I think unless you actually experience it, it's really difficult to understand what that, what that transition means on an emotional level. Exactly. Exactly. The emotional part of retirement is definitely the best-kept secret. And I'm, you, in your books, talk about some really interesting emotional stereotypes around retiring and aging that you encountered. And share with our listeners, if you will, uh, some of those interesting uh, stereotypes that you encountered during that process. Of course. Uh, I think the most noticeable was um, my husband has owned his own business for years, and um, and he actually still had a business in Illinois and still does when I moved down here to Tucson. So he went back and forth quite a bit. And so when I would go back with him occasionally and we'd go to, you know, uh, cocktail parties at somebody's house or not-for-profit events or just community-type things uh, that my husband had that were business-related, I was so excited about being retired. The first thing, you know, still networking and running around the room like I used to do, I would go up and I would tell people, oh, I'm newly retired, I'm so excited. And then I would watch their eyes glaze over, and they would look around, dart, you know, their eyes would dart around the room looking for someone who was more relevant. And it just really shocked me because, I was only retired for like six months when I started really noticing this. It was, it was something I was not expecting and certainly not, not in any way prepared to deal with. And then the other thing that was kind of interesting, by the time that all of this was happening, I was already, turn, I was already turning 70. And it's really interesting in the medical community, whether you're here in Tucson or you're in St. Louis or wherever you are, that they all view you as old because you're over 70. And when I would go to a to a, a doctor's appointment or even when my husband had knee surgery when he was down here, I'll never forget this. We checked in, you know, at the business office before you go in for the surgery, and, and my husband was filling out all the papers. And all of a sudden this young woman behind the desk started talking to him in a very loud, slow, measured voice. And finally I held up my hand and I said, are you somehow under the impression that my husband and I are senile and hard or hard of hearing? And she picked up his paperwork and she said, well, you are over 70. And I just thought that was just, it just about floored me. And then an experience that I had, I went to find a new internist uh, here in Tucson because that's another thing you don't really think about is you have to establish a whole new medical network on top of your social network. So anyway, I went, filled out all of the 500 pieces of paperwork, sat in the waiting room, and finally got called back, and the nurse came in to take my blood pressure and my temperature and to draw blood. And then she's looking through my paperwork, and she said, Mrs. Keeker, I see that you have down here that you don't take any medications. And I said, no, I don't. I'm very lucky. And she just kept questioning me. And finally she said, do you think that it might be a good idea for you to open your purse and look to make sure you didn't bring any prescriptions with you? Oh. And I was I didn't even know what to say. It was just so awful. It it just it just made me really realize that it's just ridiculous how society view, views you when you're older. 
Yes, I had an interesting experience shortly after I moved down here as well. I'm also in Arizona, and uh, I was on the the phone with an assistant in in a doctor's office, and I had had to give her my date of birth because my name is so because I have three names basically. <laughs> they can never <laughs> find my name if it's hyphenated, you know, in the system. So I always have to give them my date of birth to locate me. And I gave her the date of birth, and there was this long pause, and she said, "Well, you don't sound like you're old." <laughs> <laughs> yes, I ran into I was going to ask what so do old times. people sound like. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, the stereotypes are are really quite amazing. It's like, wait a minute, does it just happen when you make that one turning point from 69 to 70 that that, that's when people's ideas change? I know, um, I know. In fact, on some other radio shows that I've been on, I've had people say to me, you didn't sound old at all. I was so surprised. And I took that as a compliment. Yes, (laughs) Well, since you've retired, quote, I put this in quotes, since you've retired, <laughs> you've yes. written two books, Hiding in My Pajamas, and your most recent book, A Classic in Clown Shoes. What pro- things propelled you on your journey as a writer? There's so many folks out there who sort of have that dream, uh, and, you know, for many people, it's a, it's a frightening prospect, but you did it, and what what was the motivating force behind it? Well, when I first wrote Hiding in My Pajamas, um, it basically was written to save my sanity because as I started writing notes about some of the things that I was experiencing and really the roller coaster ride of, of emotions that I was I was also experiencing, I thought, nobody prepared me for this. Maybe I should write something, write a story or or something that I could share with especially with other women that I knew from my work life who were getting ready to retire that I knew had everything in place, but they weren't going to be prepared for all of the emotional stuff that I was experiencing as well. So I, you know, I just started writing, and it and it it just kept going and flowing. And when I wrote Hiding in My Pajamas, and I decided to have it published, self-published, I knew that nobody was ever going to read the book because it was so tiny. It was only 80 pages long, sort of like who moved my cheese. Um, (laughs) But I decided that I was going to send it out to family and friends and clients, old clients and people that I knew as Christmas presents. And then, um, you know, something changed later on down the line that, that made it a real success. So, I I just really looked at it as an opportunity to help other people kind of come to terms that I don't think anybody else had actually expressed. There, yes, there's so many books out on the market that talk about financial preparation for retirement or where do you move when you retire if you want to you know go to a different climate. But very few people are addressing that whole aspect of emotional that emotional roller coaster. But I have to ask you because I know some of our listeners probably caught that phrase when you said, and then something happened that changed <laughs> in terms of the book. Are you could, would you be open to talking about what was it that happened? Well, what really happened was my husband, um, after he read my book, he decided, unbeknownst to me, he decided that um, 
he was going to send it to he's an investment advisor so he sent it to chicago to the ceo of his brokerage firm and the ceo absolutely loved my book and gave it to his wife to read and then between the two of them i got this call one day and they asked me to come to chicago and be a keynote speaker at their annual event for over 500 advisors from around the United States. And um, they also bought a copy of my book for each of the 500 advisors to read. And after my, my speech, about five, about 100 men and women came up and booked me or wanted to book me to speak um, around the United States at their different offices to their clients and potential clients about my journey. And it was just so humbling and so exciting, and it it just catapulted me into being a national speaker and author, something I was not ever thinking about or prepared to embrace, and it's just been a whole life after retirement that I was not expecting at all. That's that's a wonderful story. Uh, bless your husband for doing that. <laughs> yes, yes. Now he complains about it because I traveled so much. But <laughs> right, but it's really you can't been, win, it's, right? It's just been wonderful. Yes. Well, one of the quote I, I I get carried away by quotes. I have to confess, and one of the quotes in your second book that made me absolutely laugh out loud was the one from Dave Dave Barry, who I love to begin with, that starts the chapter in your book titled "A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Hospital." Uh, you know, I think with what's going on in most of our lives these days, I think we can all use a little bit of humor. So, would you mind sharing that quote with our listeners? I think it's well worth it. Oh, sure. You know. <laughs> One of the well, let me kind of preface it a little bit before I actually give the quote. And I, one of the things that I have learned on the about writing the chapter on the the funny thing happened on the way to the hospital is that I think getting older for all of us is just one body part after another saying, "Ha, huh, you think that's bad? You know, let's just watch this." And after. After you're 65, I think we feel like we're all tootling around with our body's check engine light on, and even though it's still blinking, warning, warning, we're driving down the street saying to ourselves, nah, I think I'll worry about that later. So in 2017 and 2018 were very messy years for medical issues for me. In dealing with these issues, I thought about Dave Barry a lot. I I had met Dave Barry a couple of times at St. Louis County Library when he was there to giving giving presentations about his book and you know about his different books and he's just such a humorist and now older he talks a lot about health issues and the the quote that I have in my book that you like so much is 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 there a medical rule that requires doctors offices personnel to treat you as though you have the IQ of a Cheeto and, you know, going back to the stereotypes that you were talking about, and especially with the medical profession, absolutely. I mean, that's – he hit the nail on the head Yeah, uh, yeah. Of, of what we all go through. And, you know, this may sound strange, but I'll confess that before I go into a doctor's office, I will never go in without makeup on. Uh, and the reason for that, the reason for that is that I know I will be treated differently if I look a little bit better. Um, right. And, and I mean, we've all had that experience when we've, you know, maybe worn sweats and didn't look our best and walked into a store and how differently the salespeople 
treat you, you know, if depending on how you look. Well, I figure I, I sure as heck better look my best if I'm going to go in to deal with medical personnel. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's usually the last I thing I want I to do. do. The same thing. I kind of. My husband is always saying, "You must be going to the doctor's office. You're dressing up." <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I do it. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> well, let's let's talk first about your first book, uh, "Hiding in My Pajamas." How how would you describe that book for those who haven't yet read it? Well, I. <laughs> I think that probably um, the best thing that I can say about um, the book is that it was just a candid, really candid, candid overview of me struggling with the emotional stereotypes, all my fears about retirement that came true, the anxieties, the financial issues, and the biggest one, of course, was the marital turbulence that I experienced after closing the door to my career. There were so many things that I was not prepared for from that personal level that um, it it just defined what the book meant to me and and everything that I put down and and I when the book became such a success and I started traveling around the country with it, I was absolutely amazed at the number of people that came up to me and said, "You saved my life. I thought I was going crazy. I thought nobody else had ever experienced anything like I was going through, and if nothing else came of it, I thought, my gosh this this was the most wonderful thing in the world that could have happened mm. you've talked about you know your reasons for writing the book I'm just curious did did your as you were writing the book itself, did your goals change at all did Did it take you in some new directions you hadn't anticipated? Yes, it really kind of did, but the biggest thing is I didn't want it to actually be viewed as a self-help book because there are so many self-help books out there. I just wanted to kind of make it a heads-up book uh, about my experiences, and especially for for women of all professions when they retired. and so what I said earlier is what I, deci- what I discovered was that the best-kept secret about retirement is that there is just this huge challenge to all of us who have had years of validation through significant recognition and power in the positions that we held. And it just, you know, it was just the overriding thing that I wanted to, I guess, expand my own emotional um, issues into to having people understand that it wasn't so much them or yourself, it was how you viewed your retirement. And as you said, Elise, how you looked at things like you used to be and getting out of that rut to look to a different tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And you talked about the amazing reaction that you had from so many people to your book. Are there any particular reactions from people that stand out in your mind? And I'm curious, too, did as many men sort of react to it as well as women, or did you see any kind of gender difference? Well, especially when I was traveling around the country doing, you know, the presentations kind of right in front of groups and organizations from all sizes, from 500 was the largest number that I've done to 25 people at a, in a conference room. And... Um, and yes, I, a lot of the women that bought my books or that were at these events, they made their husbands read them because 
either they weren't retired or they were getting ready to retire. But some of the people that were retired came up to me after the presentation and said, oh, my gosh, I wish I had heard this 25 years ago because my life would be entirely different. What I was really surprised at, that some, and, and certainly not hundreds of people, but there were a lot more that was very alarming to me, of men and women that were couples that actually got a divorce after they retired because they couldn't learn how to live together again. And that was very startling to me, um, something I did not expect. And and I think the book helped a lot of these people, that men and women, that didn't know what they were actually going through as a couple, helped put things into perspective, I guess you might say. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit about how your life has changed after writing your first book. Is there anything else regarding that topic that you'd like to touch on? Well, the changes of, you know, traveling around the country and meeting all of these wonderful people has just been a journey that I, as I said before, that I was not expecting. And I have been asked to be on podcasts and radio shows, and um, I'm writing for two different blogs. That's something that I never expected, and I get such wonderful feedback and and information of what people would like to hear and what they were they're looking for as individuals. Um, I've just been approached by a um, a company that has asked me to be a national spokesperson for them, and that's something that I didn't see coming. So it's a whole new life after retirement that I was not prepared for or not expecting, and um, I, I just can't tell you how humbling it actually is because of all the people in the world I thought something like this would happen to, I never expected it to be me. <laughs> and you you were sort of joking earlier about the fact that, you know, your husband sort of launched you into this in some degree, but right. but it's also meant that your relationship has changed because you're traveling a whole lot more. Uh, are there other ways that it's sort of changed things unexpectedly for you in regarding a relationship? Well, yes, absolutely. The relationship my hus- with my husband has changed dramatically in so many different ways. And the biggest the biggest thing that was out there that we were not expecting was that because he was still employed and still owned his own business and going back and forth, there were a lot of dynamics that happened between us that uh, just didn't seem to come to mind until after I retired. And, you know, years ago, Irma Brombeck said there are no guarantees with marriage. You want a guarantee, you just need to buy a car battery. And that kind of (laughs) happened to us. My husband and I actually were high school sweethearts, and we've been together for almost 60 years now. And I thought, you know, when you're with somebody for that long a period of time, you really know each other really well. And after I retired, there would be no surprises. But relationships are tricky business at any age, and our relationship was complicated. And our relationship today is still very much like a wild roller coaster ride. You know, some days we get up and we put our hands up in the air and we laugh out loud as we navigate the kind of stress and the twists and the turns that we go through. And sometimes we just hold on tight to the bar and scream as the roller coaster takes us down (laughs) these really steep hills and turns. But in all honesty, and that's one of the things that I think that my readers have loved, 
we are still navigating the marriage Bermuda Triangle. It is still <laughs> not perfect if there is such a thing. And one of the things that I did learn um, that is absolutely true, there actually is a honeymoon period after you retire. AARP actually calls it out-of-sync retirement syndrome. And what they're really talking about is that you as a couple have to learn how to build a whole new relationship all over again. I think the one thing I can say in my defense, my mother was married eight times, so I did not have a role model for marriage. So it's amazing my Mm. husband and I have been together as long as we have. (laughs) But, you know, it's been interesting that we, we have tried to figure out a structure to fill our days when he's here in Tucson with me because when you're, Together, 24-7, um, things seep in that you were not expecting because as a new retiree, we don't have to get up every day. We don't have the purpose that we had every day of getting up and going to our jobs or our work yeah. or our daily routine. And the worst part of it is that we don't realize, as you mentioned earlier, that our identities are so closely linked to our personal life and who we were at work, we just can find it terribly difficult to adjust to a life outside the workplace. Who are we really when we retire? And I found myself actually being jealous of my husband because he was important. He was still in the fray. His clients called him all the time for advice and, you know, to do things. So it was not something that I in any way expected to feel, and I felt stupid because I did. So when I came to Tucson, I was actually a very different person because I no longer had an identity or a clue or a defined purpose of who I was or what I wanted to do, and I had all of this time on my hands. So, And, of course, no real structure in place. So like an idiot, I decided that I didn't need a housekeeper anymore. We had a lovely 2,300-square-foot home and I could clean it, and I could do all the cooking and the ironing and all the stuff that I hadn't done for years because I had all the time in the world. And in hindsight, what I should have remembered was what Phyllis Diller said years ago, housework can't kill you, but why take the chance? <laughs> and every time I turned around, it seemed like I was grocery shopping. I didn't have time to grocery shop very much when I was working the last 20 years of my life because my work life, you know, was so demanding. And so three meals a day suddenly became a chore and were no longer creative and fun. And my husband was constantly whipping into the kitchen asking me what was going to be for lunch because he had to have a he had a 1:30 tea time. So, I guess the big secret to retirement is really especially when you're in a relationship, that it is a, just a huge challenge for all of us to, to come together. And and your analogy of the roller coaster, I think, really says it all. But your husband is still working, correct? Yes, he still owns his own business. And so we're kind of now in competition, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there's the other part where, you retire and perhaps your spouse has already retired and then you are with each other 24-7 like you've never been before. And I know that can be a very challenging experience for a lot of people as well. Um, yes, I, I had a funny I, thing happen. I had a new, a, a, 
friend of, in Arizona who was a highly respected judge, and her husband was a, a very powerful political attorney, and they both retired at the same time. They'd been married for 40 years, and they didn't have any children. And they, because of their jobs, you know, they didn't have a lot to, to uh, a lot of time to spend with each other. So they were really looking at this as a second honeymoon period for them. And and you know, as a judge, she was in her chambers, quietly going over cases all the time. Nobody ever disturbed her without permission. And she was used to having a certain amount of decorum and and respect. And her husband was just like, you know flying all over the place and dealing with all of these hot issues around the country as a political attorney. And so when they retired together at the same time, they both sat in the house and looked at each other, and she confided in me that she said, he just drives me absolutely crazy. She said, he follows me around the house all day long talking, and she said, he's even making suggestions about what to cook for dinner and what I should buy and how I should actually cook when he's never cooked anything in his entire life. <laughs> and he also said he actually did a time and motion study on how she was straightening up the house to make sure that she was doing it right. And she said she just wanted him to go away and shut up. <laughs> because we don't have the conversations before we retire, usually we don't, about how much time as a couple you know, we actually want to spend together. Yeah. One couple told me that they work out this date night once a week that they want to that they want to go out uh, on. He goes out on Tuesdays, and she goes out on Thursdays, and it works great for them. But I decided, after listening to them on one of my book tours, that my husband and I should do that when he's here. We should have a date night once a week, and so one of us gets to plan every other week what we want to do, and neither one of us can complain about what each other wants to do. So to give you an example, a few weeks ago when my husband was here, it was his date night, and we went to Home Depot to buy a comfort height toilet, and then we went to Chili's <laughs> for dinner. And that was the highlight out of my week. So in essence, we were still working on like a, I guess you would call it kind of a compatible compromise to help work out our differences. I I just had to chuckle when you mentioned Home Depot because I I, I think my husband knows everyone on a first name basis at that store. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I let's talk a little bit about your second book. One description of your second book, A Classic in Clown Shoes, reads Love, Life, and Money. A hilarious journey of coming to terms with a brand new you. What was important for you to convey to readers in your second book? Well, I think the biggest thing um, was probably, I, I don't know, I think the biggest thing was probably just letting people know that there is life after going through a lot of different things. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but um, there are so many things that I wanted to say in the second book uh, that I didn't, that I learned because of the first book, I guess that you might say. So it's hard for me to articulate that part because I, I started outlining all of the chapters and decided that um, 
that I would try to say something as in as meaningful as possibly could um, in each of the chapters that would be different than than my first chapter, and I mean my first book. Um, I wanted to let people know that I had so many different struggles after I had the, the medical issues that I had um, after I'd written my first book that it was a it was an opportunity to talk about how I wanted to present that instead of writing a book about some of the issues that I had that was like a, one great big pity party, how I could take and, and find humor in all of the things that I wanted to say that were very, very emotional and very deep for me. And... Um, I know I'm kind of losing my track here, but it's just been such an emotional uh, writing of the uh, classic and clown shoes because there were so many things, like I said, that were so personally intertwined into the book that I found very difficult um, to write, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I can believe that. And But one of the things I have to say that, I really loved about the book. It, it's both, and it's true of both your books, it's both poignant and hilariously funny in parts. And many times I found myself laughing out loud as I read it, and I thank you for that. I need that. <laughs> but thinking about the writing process itself, I think it would be extremely hard to balance these two very different tones in a book. I'm just curious if you struggle with that at all. And, and how, if so, how did you resolve that challenge? Well, it was difficult because overall I tried to balance the serious with the humor. Um, it it's, is very difficult to combine humor with pathos. I wanted yeah. the readers to really identify with my flaws and laugh along with me about how I dealt with all of the things that happened. But I believe we can all identify with somebody else's pain and suffering in different ways. You know, when people read the chapter about my surgery, as I said a few minutes ago, I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me, so I incorporated as much humor as I could to alleviate the readers from hopefully thinking that it was such a distressful situation. I think my most basic instinct was to make fun of myself in in almost all of the situations that I wrote about. And I know a lot of women that do the same thing to survive in difficult times. It's a very difficult and delicate balance between the seriousness of a situation and finding the level, the levity in everything. I, I can honestly say I probably didn't all do it all correctly, but my hope is that the readers would find comfort in how I combined the two. And everybody has their own, you know, theories and things of how they want to look at them, but that was how I dealt with it, was just trying to say there was such levity in it. And, and as I wrote the humor in all of the things I went through, I really did experience the humor that I wrote about because it was so difficult being in a wheelchair for six months and experiencing a lot of the things that I experienced that I wanted everybody to know that, there was a silver lining out there. Yeah. And there there were some really um, 
especially poignant chapters in this second book. And I'm curious, what was the hardest part of this book for you to write? Oh, definitely the hardest part for me to write was the chapter on depression made me do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with clinical depression about three years after I retired. I didn't tell anybody, uh, not even my husband or my family for a long, long time. Because, you know, it really turns out that depression is, a master of disguise, and I hit it very, very well. I felt that the depression I was experiencing, even when I was writing Hiding in My Pajamas, was just the drama of retiring and moving across the country and trying to get settled and that anybody would be depressed. It wasn't just me being depressed. But I I couldn't reach out for help because I was so deeply ashamed when I was diagnosed. And, and you know yourself from all of the reading and the conversations that we've had is that there is a national stigma about uh, the a social stigma around depression and people's misconceptions about it. And one of the things I can share is that the doctor that I had who diagnosed me, who was such a lovely man, he said that I'd probably suffered from depression all my life and that I didn't know it. And he said, pretending to be happy when you are in pain is an example of how strong you really are as a person. And I just mm-hmm. cried after he said that because I thought at the time, how wonderful was, it, was that of him to say to me. And so what I decided is and when I was writing a classic in Clown Shoes, in our darkest moments, trying to find humor changed my direction, and I hope it will change others' directions. Because I was pretty much exhausted from pretending that I wasn't depressed all the time. And I remember there was a quote that I read years ago. It said, the broken will always be able to love harder than most, because once you've been in the dark, you learn to appreciate everything that shines. And so now, when the sun comes out, when a new day starts, I appreciate what's shining, and I appreciate my days. And the biggest thing is, and I hope for other listeners that suffer from depression as well, I no longer judge myself when I have bad days. I judge myself by how much joy I can bring into my day and how much joy through my books and through my talks and whatever I can do to help others. I think that it's this whole process of writing has helped me in the journey to find myself and actually be proud of how far I've come as a person that suffers from depression. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I, this was not in your book, but you recently did um, a really wonderful interview with the founder of an online site called Cool Life. It's spelled K-U-E-L, Life, and it's for women 45 and over. And uh, one of the things you shared was that you joined um, a group, a laughter group. Um, Right. Tell us about that. Well, I joined this group of women that I kind of formed myself, who I met um, going to an actual um, uh, seminar about depression and these women were there and I we had coffee afterwards and got to chatting and we said you know what we need to come together and just laugh and tell stories about what we've been going through and how we we've been dealing with them excuse me and it's just been this monumentally wonderful opportunity to share all kinds of things 
and not be judged by anybody. And I would encourage all of your listeners to do the same thing, whether it's about depression or just meeting with people and having a good time, because the world is kind of a daunting place right now. And to know that you can sit down with some some women and even men if you want to invite them and not be judged by what you say and how you, you know, just laugh and have a good time. And it's story after story of, of things that make us all laugh that's, that's really great. Mm. Sounds like a great group, Becky. It's a wonderful idea. In your book, you touch on all aspects of retirement, from the financial to the emotional. And looking for a moment at the financial end of things, because obviously that is important too. I mean, there's some heartbreaking stories that you recount in your book about people who have not really done planning for what lies ahead. But what recommendations would you have for those who are in the planning stages for retirement? Well, I think the big thing to think about, and and this is documented in every financial um, magazine, is unfortunately planning for retirement, or not planning for retirement, is universal. Um, There was a study that I read years ago that said that only about 12% of people working today have any kind of written strategy or an actual written plan for retirement. And if you think about it, 12%, that is pretty small. That's amazing. That is amazing. And so, you know, as I travel around the country, and and that's part of one of my uh, part of my presentations. One of the things I tell everybody is that there are five key emotions that affect our decision making process when it comes to money, and especially we women struggle with this. Number number one is definitely fear. Fear of not having enough money, and because you don't have a plan, you're kind of frozen into immobility, I guess, because you don't know what to do. And number two is is a big one because it's guilt, guilt of I'm not, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Uh, Should I be denying myself to save money? The kids need shoes, so I can't do it this month. You know, there's all kinds of guilt that just swirls around us when we deal with finances. And one of the big ones, number three, is shame because sometimes when we get into financial situations that are bad, we hide them because that's the only thing that we know how to do. Instead of reaching out for help, we become deeper and deeper in debt. Um, number four is anger because we're, we're either making mistakes or a lot of times, and you hear this about financial advisors all over the country when women go to them with their financial issues or how to set up a retirement plan, Sometimes that doesn't go very well and they don't take them seriously. And so there's, there's still a stereotype attached to that. And number five is blame. I've invested in the wrong things. I don't have anybody that I trust, so I can't do it because I, I don't want to risk financial disappointment. And on the lighter side of that, when I was at a presentation not too long ago in Ohio, a CPA came up to me after the event, and he said, you are so right about all the things that you talk about, about finances. And he said, to try to make light of it with my clients who are getting too close to retirement and haven't saved them enough money, he said, I just look them right in the eye and I say, I've crunched the numbers in your retirement account, and it's time to decide which of you will be driving the getaway car and who will be wearing the mask. 
<laughs> because they are in no way prepared for this at all. And a few years ago, I read this wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal about how to plan your finances and how to do this, that, or the other. And and he didn't make it complicated. And he was a financial strategist who boiled it down to one simple sentence. There is only one secret to financial planning. Wealth is born of great savings habits. And that's what I tell everybody, and that's what I said in my first book. My husband and I started out saving $25 a month. That is all. And the key is simple. Just get a plan down on paper in your late 30s, early 40s, and create a budget and live on it. I cannot tell you how many people say, I don't need to have a budget. I know exactly what I spend. No, you don't unless you write it down. Because money is emotional currency. We can either use it or we can squander it. And I'm sure both of us and many of your listeners have seen people in their families and friends and business associates squander it to the nth degree. But, you know, all of our life we have financial implications. So we need to learn early in the game to retire smart. And as silly as it sounds, and I tell everybody this at the end of my financial uh, conversation, money is something you have to have in case you don't die. And everybody looks at me and they say, what? What does that mean? Exactly what it says. The big question is never at what age you want to retire, but at what income do you want to retire? So just putting those basic planning things into place and don't make brain surgery out of it and take your $25, your $100, your $1,000, whatever you can afford, and just do it, as Nike says. <laughs> mm, great advice. You have a couple of great quotes from Nora Ephron in Chapter 5 of your book. I know she's one of your favorite writers. And that 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 chapter is called Creating Your Own View of You. Could you just share some of your wisdom from that particular chapter with us? <laughs> well, that that was a biggie. So uh, it's 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 um it's such a funny chapter, I think, and I hope it is to everybody else because I've come to the realization that being dismissed as obsolete as you age has just become this national sport unto itself. And I see it every day in Tucson, a society that is absolutely filled with old people and people who are intolerant of aging. So personally, I'm ready to just put on the boxing gloves and live by what Nora Afrin said, above all, be the heroine of your life and not the victim. You know, I think so many of us women have gone through our own share of body shaming that I know when I looked in a mirror at somebody's house in their bathroom a few couple of years ago, and it was one of those great, those great big makeup mirrors that had lights all around them, and I, I yes. looked at myself and I thought, oh, my goodness. And I remembered what Robert Frost said, wrinkled was not one of the things I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> and I was looking at all the wrinkles just staring at me, and I thought, oh, wow. Because we all deserve to look and feel our best, and we all need to have the information that addresses those particular concerns, and especially when you get over a certain age. 
you know, Nora Ephron said, anything you think is wrong with your body at the age of 35, you will be nostalgic for at the age of 45. And I think I still feel like that at the age now of 76. So <laughs> that is so true. We just have to be creative about ourselves in an entirely different way. And that's really why I wrote this chapter. There is, I think there's another part that I didn't put in there that, that is seldom discussed after we retire, and that is a, a significant loss of social power that we used to have to energize and ignite us as women. You know, I remember in our positions or careers, we were tireless, we were rewarded, we got bonuses, we dressed up in our, in our wonderful-looking suits and dresses, we looked good, we carried the power purse, some of us that could actually do it wore stiletto heels. But when we retire, we have to produce this whole new energy base that rewards a whole different type of person. And, you know, I guess we all want to live this good life, but the problem is we just don't want to get old doing it. So <laughs> we shouldn't be bound <laughs> by any rules as we age whatsoever. So what one of the great- things I have tried to do is live by this affirmation never water yourself down just because someone else can't handle you at 100 percent oh i love it and that is a great time has just flown so quickly that is a great line to leave on becky thank you so much for sharing so much wonderful information and inspiring information with us this evening Well, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate it, and I hope everyone has a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. I'd like to take just a few moments before we close to give you a brief look ahead at some of the guests who will be joining us on future editions of our Learning Well program. Next month, October 1st, our guest will be Maureen Lake. She's a holistic wellness coach and best-selling author and is passionate about helping women improve their health, energy, happiness, especially after a draining illness. And we're delighted that the best-selling author, Richard Leiter, will be returning to Learning Well and will be with us on November 5th. He's the author of The Power of Purpose and nine other books, and for four decades has pioneered the way we answer the question, what do you get up for in the morning? And in November, he'll be joining us to talk about his brand new upcoming book. And our last guest of 2019 will be Matt Richtel. Matt is the author of the book, An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science About the Immune System. And you can always access any of our past Learning Well programs at your convenience by simply Googling Edge Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. Some of our past guests that you might find particularly interesting include Dr. Raphael Kelman, author of The Microbiome Diet, and the founder of the Kelman Center for Integrative and Functional Medicine. Dr. Kelman lectures all over the world, advocating for whole patient care and discussing his cutting-edge approach to curing illness through the healing of the microbiome. Another past guest that I think you might find particularly interesting is Dr. Patrick Hannaway, who is one of the most well-known and respected doctors in the field of functional 
functional medicine. He served as a president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine, was the first medical director for the Cleveland Clinic's functional medicine department, which, by the way, has a waiting list of over 4,000 people, and is currently the director of research at the Center for Functional Medicine. And in closing, I'd like to thank our guest, Becky Keeker, as well as the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College for being our sponsor. And we'd love your feedback on learning well as, and your suggestions for future guests. So please feel free to get in touch with us at Normandale Community College with your thoughts. And if you enjoy the show, we also encourage you to let others know about our conversations on learning well. We hope you can join us next month on Tuesday, October 1st at at 6 p.m. Central Time for our conversation with Maureen Lake, author and holistic wellness coach. Until then, good evening and stay well. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.